Hello and welcome to the Poplar Propcast. It's election day and I am your host, Justin Libernet. I've already voted, so I've gotten that taken care of for me. I'm in Las Vegas, so my vote's going to affect any of you guys that are in Las Vegas. Some of the stuff affects Nevada, so, you know, it may affect Nevada. And we also have one of the pivotal Senate races, so that might affect everybody. Super exciting. But what we're going to look at today are a couple of things that are on the ballot across the country and talk about them in scope of why they're ending up on the ballot, what the downstream effect of that is for the real estate industry, and what it means if you have a home that's in one of those areas or is affected by one of those things. So we're going to bounce around a little bit and use specific ballot measures to have this discussion. Uh, We're going to talk about short-term rental and VRBO kind of stuff in Colorado. There's a specific city that's having issues around that, so they've put a ballot measure up. We're going to talk about Zoning in Edmond, and this is a interesting one because it's a small town initiative to change the zoning in a specific plot, uh, and we'll we'll talk about that and how it's weird that it's ended up on the ballot at all. Uh, we're going to talk about affordable housing on the ballot in Columbus, Ohio, uh, rent control in Orange County, Florida, tightening standards around rent control in California, and then inflation as this this specter behind that whole thing, which is really pushing these ballot measures and activism in there. It also is happening over in Oakland, but we're going to talk about Oakland in terms of the eviction protections and all of the things that they have on their ballot this election cycle. So that said, let's get to it and kick it off by talking about short-term rentals in Colorado. So we have to set the stage first. Uh, Recognize that Colorado ski towns have had probably one of the longest relationships with vacation rentals and second homes. Lots of um, well-to-do people will... Uh, have a house in Tahoe or a house in Colorado that they go to during ski season uh, or occasionally for summer events, but then the rest of the year it's not really being used. So VRBO, Airbnb, and all these things were super useful to them to be able to lease those out to people that wanted to go up and go hiking during the summer or go up and ski on a weekend when they weren't there. So they've long been present. It's always been a factor of life, and it's nice because that's not something you necessarily live year-round in. If you're just there vacationing. The other side of that, though, is all the people that actually live there. The people that live there year-round, their kids go to school there, they're active members of the city and the community, and they're the ones that supply the ability of that town to support these tourists that come in and are the economic engine. You have to have both. You have to have the labor and then the capital coming in to support it. What's happened, though, is that we're watching this crazy housing market that flowed through in the pandemic, where we saw a depression in the number of Airbnb and VRBO activities early in the pandemic when everybody was kind of scared in an immediate lockdown. And then as 2020 wore on and we got to 2021 and people started getting vaccinated and traveling again, you saw people start to go and engage with this more. This is happening at the same time that we have record low interest rates, record low mortgage rates. So people are buying properties specifically with the goal of investing in destination towns and capitalizing on this new pent-up demand for unique travel. Uh, You also have a lot of people that are able to work from home, so they're like, cool, let's go for three weeks to Colorado instead of a weekend. And so Airbnb and VRBO really fed that. The investors really jumped in and chased that, and we saw an all-time record high of 1.3 million in May of 2022 with 84,000 new listings added across the platforms with VRBO and AirDNA, or Airbnb. These are AirDNA stats. They're current through May. They're going to add to it. There'll be more. I'm sure we've hit more red letter marks in that. So with that happening, you have 
Uh, stories like the one reported by Rocky Mountain PBS, uh, Steamboat Springs, Colorado, has is a very um, ski-friendly town. Uh, it talks about a young lady who'd been 10 years in her rented apartment, 10 years of laughs and memories, memories, family being together. And then in 2021, her landlord sold the place because in those 10 years, the value had skyrocketed. And having had somebody in there 10 years, you've got a really stable investment that then you go, yep, it's, I'm good. I can capitalize. And so this person who lived in Steamboat Springs for 30 years and lived in an apartment for 10 is now looking around and going, well, crap, I am now need to replace my home. And during that search, she found herself on the short end of it. They're they're $1,000 more than she was originally paying. And that's in large part because the number of Airbnbs increase and that sacrifices the local affordable housing for people that live there. So she bumps into that, finally gets a lease, and then gets bumped out of another lease for Airbnb. So go read that story. It's pretty entertaining uh, as a subject lesson in how abusive the housing market can be right now when it gets bounced around between investors. Um, The other side of that, though, is that there's a lot of legislation been passed trying to correct this, and there's huge swings in different directions. We have an Airbnb episode early on that you can go listen to where some of us are working through it right now where we've had an Airbnb, but it's in a market where the city is trying like hell to figure out how to have enough affordable housing, how to keep rent under control without having actual rent control and without having to change the zoning to build more houses, build denser. We're seeing this in Las Vegas right now specifically where there's an impasse between the business-friendly attitude and then the housing crunch where people just are getting priced out because it's such a destination. So what they're doing in Colorado is a lot of different solutions. It's everything from a 2% tax on all lodging to places where they're limiting what you can do and how much you can use. So as they look at that, you're going to see a huge span of these and they're going to be hyper-local. Um, Colorado, until last year, Colorado only allowed municipalities to tax lodging properties if the money from the tax goes towards marketing municipality. So if you're in Summit County, then the money that you earn from those lodgings has to be used towards marketing Summit County. It can't be used for infrastructure. Um, but now in 2021, the legislature changed that. And so... They said you can use this for infrastructure. You can use lodging taxes to pay for affordable housing. You can use it to pay for road repairs. You can use it to pay for buses and things that will help the town itself from this tourism. So voters are now in Summit County where this particular story is taking place. They're being asked to approve a 2% lodging tax on nightly rentals in unincorporated parts of the county. It'll raise about $5 million a year. And that can be put towards workforce housing, childcare, and managing impacts of increased tourism, which is great. Like that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's fair to ask people that are coming to visit to help support the local economy. And I get the difference between them spending money at the restaurants and them spending money on the lodging and then spending money on lift tickets, which are also being taxed to support that and the lodging piece. But where I think it makes a lot of sense is that in that lodging piece, you have so much money 
passing through that portion of the bill. Um, the largest expense most people are going to have when they come through is lodging and lift tickets. And then food and drink is the short third. But that's quite a lot of the money. And so if you're not capitalizing or taxing on the largest transaction they're doing when they come, makes a lot of sense. Um, there's a back and forth. Some people think that this impacts the business. It decreases the amount of bookings. But we'll see. I, I don't buy that argument, especially at somewhere around a 2%. Um, I know that for myself, having worked with Airbnb pricing tools for my own Airbnb, there's there's a lot of little shuffles you do to kind of go, cool, if I drop it 20 bucks, am I going to get the booking? If I raise it 20 bucks, will it not book until a week before, right? You're constantly playing that game. And so this will just become a new expense that you kind of layer in. So this is, though, I will say, a very straightforward approach to this. Um, the licensing and restrictions there aren't something that they talk about, so I'm not sure what they are in that area. I know that in other areas, they're being very restrictive with how many licenses or pieces they can have. So this is an interesting one on the ballot. We'll see how it goes, but it should be, it should be <laughs> easy to pass because everybody that's there is going to get the benefit of it, and the people that come through are the ones that pay it. And I'm a fan of that system living in Vegas because the people that come through and gamble, we tax the gambling money and that's a huge portion portion of our base for improvements and taking care of the city. We have pretty good roads, pretty good parks, maybe not the greatest schools, but our, our avenue there and our tack there is very similar to what Colorado is looking here. So we'll see how that runs. Okay, we're going to switch gears now and go to Edmond, Oklahoma. This is a weird one because the reason I want to talk about this particular ballot question is it's a zoning question that ended up on the ballot because of a citizen petition, which is a common way that this stuff happens where they want a specific change. They go for it and they chase it down, right? So they go, it should be this way. Let's get it this way. Okay, so here's the way the story works and then we'll talk about the wonkiness of this particular election so in edmond oklahoma there's a a guy owned a big piece of frontage road and that piece of frontage road was zoned commercial right so you could build commercial stuff there he had a developer that came to him and said hey i want to build apartments on this okay so to be able to build apartments on it he would have to get the zoning changed to residential Okay, so that's pretty straightforward. That's something that happens. You can you can normally go and talk to the city council for. So he goes and he starts asking for rezoning, which normally takes 60 to 70 days. And then it gets complicated because people in the community go, hey, we don't really want that apartment building there. We don't want the rezoning to happen. So... Once that happens, it kind of slows everything down for the guy that owns the piece of property. And this petition hits enough votes or excuse me, enough signatures to be put on the ballot. The petition has to hit a number of signatures, gets put on the ballot. So the ballot question is, should this area be rezoned for residential or shall it remain commercial? Those are your choices. Yes, it gets rezoned. No, it stays commercial. And as the... City Council is looking at this. 
two of the five city council members go, you know what, this actually will be fine. The schools can handle it. The tax loads are going to be good. And it's actually on this road that'd be perfect. It'd be a great windfall for Edmund. So we're going to put out op-eds saying, yes, vote yes. Let's make it residential. And as they came out with that and people started looking at it, they were looking at it and going, okay, well, maybe, maybe it isn't that bad. So they were going through that space and trying to figure it out. And as they do it, uh, the guy who owns a piece of property sees all this happening and goes, okay, I'm not going to mess with this. I don't think it's, it's, it's going to take too long. I don't want to wait anymore. I want to get something started. I want to break ground and makes a deal with the guy to do commercial. Now he makes a deal with the guy to go commercial. And now this ballot question is on the ballot. So if this ballot initiative passes and they rezone it for residential, he's going to have to go to the city council and ask for rezoning back to the original commercial. So that's that's where this gets all mucked up in the way that this process works. And I think it's it's <clears throat> it's a really effective way to kind of look at how we're dealing with zoning and citizen petitions and nimbyism and that kind of those efforts and how they really mess up this process and this flow. I think that this is something that happens both with environmental impact reviews sometimes. It starts with um, restrictions and uses on waterways. It's, it's with road use. It's with land use. And because there's no cohesive planning on this, there's all just legacy kind of flow where it's commercial because it was zoned that way 20 years ago. And this piece of land is passed back and forth. And now the city's a little bit bigger. And so they want to put in more housing. They can't until they rezone it. But then they go commercial, so it'll get rezoned and it'll have to chase again. So this this ballot measure is fascinating because it's just pushing all of these things against each other. And it's slowing down the decision-making ability of these people that actually own the land and are trying to do something with it. So we'll see how that plays out in Edmond. But it's it's freaking fascinating. Even just looking through and looking at quotes from what people are saying. So the... Edmond City Council and Planning Commission, they just take into account zoning questions and not other outside factors. So uh, this is from uh, one of the people, um, Moore, who's a developer, says, when we're making zoning decisions, it's not in our scope to say, well, what if next week they decide to contract with somebody else? Or what if there's a referendum petition? That's what the referendum petition was on, and that's what the vote is for. So he's, he's sitting there and looking at this, and as a person on the council who's also a developer you can see how people would wonder about his motivations. But at the same time, he's split because now on the other side, the the other person that voted the yes or said yes, Chapman, said now they want us to look out for the developer. They want us to look out for Battle. That's the guy's name. Like that would be okay for us to completely change our viewpoint and our strategy on Edmund for a developer. No, it's still the right thing to build multifamily. So this guy's original plan to develop on it has had everything, everybody come around full circle in six months. And it makes it heightened that there is an affordable housing crisis everywhere. So do they build commercial there? Do they build multifamily? How does the city get involved with that while still respecting 
the rights of the landowner and still respecting the needs of its citizens. It's a really funky confluence of events that kind of highlights how bizarre this whole zoning process is and what people's rights are in these different pieces of land and how citizens can come together and go, nah, we don't want it. Oh, wait, we actually do. We just didn't understand it before. But now that we understand it, we want it, and we know that you're going to do something else, but we'd rather you did what we wanted. Sometimes it sounds like children fighting, and that's very unfortunate. But we'll see how Edmund rolls out and what they decide to do, because that's going to be an interesting little swell. We are going to turn now to Columbus, Ohio. Uh, we've talked about Columbus before with Mitch Deminsky from Solutions for Real Estate. Uh, the piece that's there this time is for an affordable housing bond. So everywhere is having affordability issues. Um, Central Ohio, Columbus specifically, is very aggrieved by this, more so than other places. So a couple of quick facts. This is coming from Spectrum News out in Columbus um, and other sources. So Zillow's home value index says that Columbus home values have increased by more than 85% over the past five years. Now, a good chunk of that is in the last two years, but 85% increase over the past five years is huge. Uh, City of Columbus recently passed a $50 million affordable housing bond in 2019. They built 1,300 affordable rental units with that. So pretty good deal for them. Um, the current mayor, Andrew Ginther, is asking them to pass another bond that would allocate $200 million to affordable housing. Uh, that affordable housing bond is issue 16 on the ballot. Bunch of other stuff in there about recreation and parks, public service, public utilities and health, all kinds of things. But the $200 million bond he's asking for would allocate $80 million for construction of affordable rental units, $50 million for affordable homes, $40 million to preserve existing housing affordability, and $30 million for programs and permanent housing for those experiencing homelessness. So this $200 million bond is kind of jumping in there and kind of trying to take care of that piece of Ohio that is about to get inundated. So there's a lot of building going on all over Columbus, but there's a <laughs> there's there's a chip fab coming. So Ohio is about to start and this was this came out in January of 2022, but Ohio's going to start um, a chip fab in Columbus and their plan is to make it the largest silicon manufacturing location on the planet. Uh, it has the a bunch of options, and it could be up to 2,000 acres, eight fabs, if it goes well. The initial plan is for two fabs. Uh, a fab is, is where they fabricate the chips. And just two fabs is going to employ 3,000 people. So you get 3,000 more people, plus their families, plus their, their kids, plus all the support systems that come around having 3,000 more people in Columbus. Now, hearkening back to that... Uh, uh, $50 million affordable housing bond that built 1300 affordable rental units. So that built less than half the capacity that's going to be added in people in these fabs. Now it's true. Some people will be from Columbus that end up working there, say a third. You're still at 2000 new people with new families that are coming there that specifically have fab and ship making experience. Now the, 80 million they're planning for affordable rental units and 50 million for affordable homes is not going to build as many homes now as it did off that first bond in 2019 that built through 2019 and 2020. Those homes are 
more affordable to build than anything you're going to build right now. So that piece of inflation over the last two years that's kicked this all up, if we call it, you know, 15% between the two years, um, or excuse me, from 2019 to 2022, really, we call it 15% even. That means a 15% in reduction of the number of units they can build. So they're going to build less homes with the same amount of money. Well, with more money, but you get what I'm saying is that they're still going to be stretching for it. And Columbus is already growing. <clears throat> Columbus continues to grow. Part of the reason it has that pressure on its price. So I think this is bond is a good idea. I think that what Ohio has done with the, or Columbus specifically has done with that $50 million bond shows that it can responsibly do this and actually build the units. Um, I think that it doesn't fight with normal developers. It's almost always done in partnership with them. And there's enough coming through that this isn't going to throw anything out of whack. So I think it's a good, it's a good idea. But I wanted to talk about the other side of this. And the other side of this is that the investment into the chip fab that Intel is proposing is $100 billion over the next decade. So $10 billion a year on building out this chip fab and making it just churning out microprocessors and chips for their new, I'm sure for their new graphics cards. And then you've got server chips and, and AI chips and all kinds of different chips, right? So they're going to make a ton of chips here and they must expect to make a massive profit on that to invest a hundred billion dollars. The reason I want to mention it is because if you took 2% of the annual spend each year over the next 10 years, you'd get $200 million each year that you could be pushing into this same as this $200 million bond. So a lot of times when there's public private partnerships and they're moving in, the big thing that the private companies get for bringing it here is tax breaks. But in, in this case, there's going to be such pressure on the infrastructure from this silicon plant. So it's good that they're putting this $200 million bond in. It's going to help with the population pressures that come with that big of a chip fab, plus everything else that's coming to Columbus. There's a lot of people that are still moving there, and it's a growing city. But as that happens, and the affordability housing crisis worsens there, I don't know what the projection is for how many houses they need to build. But I appreciate that there's public policy and there's attempts to mitigate the downside of that um, massive population boom, that massive housing price boom, and that continuing influx of people to Columbus. So bravo, Columbus. I hope your bill passes and you have $200 million to build stuff and take care of people's housing needs. So with that, let's pivot to the other side of control. So the last one we were talking about in Ohio is there's a problem with supply and demand. It's very clear from the growth in the city and the amount of building that's being done. If you don't have that same kind of growth in the city, but you do have um, this pressure that's bringing up the rents for other reasons, you bump into the need to do something to try and get that leveled out so that you're not pricing people out of living in your area. You, you don't want everybody that works in the area to have to come in from outside of the area. It messes with your traffic. It makes everybody's day kind of worse. So. We're going to talk about rent control now and where rent control is on the ballot. 
One of the fascinating ones is in Orange County, Florida, where Disney World is, right? So Orlando and all that. They have a ballot initiative to limit rent increases to the annual increase in the consumer price index. There's a court case that means even if it passes, it could be nullified. Well, that's different. We're focusing on the rent control piece right now. Um, the people that support this, they point at the population. It has increased, like Columbus has. It's gone up 25% since 2010. So 25% more people there are living there in the last 12 years. And rents jumped 25% between 2020 and 2021. And they had another double-digit increase in 2022. And they're having an increased housing shortage. This Hurricane Ian just blew through. It busted 11, yeah, 1,100 rental properties up at about $44.5 million in damage to those rental properties. So there's a split between owned properties that are damaged and people can figure out how to fix them. But while they're fixing them, they need to rent somewhere. So the rental properties get this huge pressure on them. So... They have this problem where all of a sudden your house can go away and then insurance is paying not only to fix your house, but also for you to rent somewhere, but there's nowhere for you to rent. So you're kind of in a crap position. The people that are against the rent increases say that this will affect mom and pop landlords. It'll affect builders. People aren't going to put stuff in if they can't get returns on their investment. And that's fair. But that's not what we've seen happen. Um, places where there have been uh, rent control passed is still building like crazy, still making money like crazy, and it's just going, going, going. So uh, I don't know if, if that's really an argument in good faith because you, you're still going to look at the underlying money of the deal and you just add one more factor in and go, okay, I can still make money on this deal, so it's worth it. So the business equation is kind of looking at that investment and return, but this particular push on the other side is going, hey, let's not look at that. Let's not add another piece into the equation. Um, so that's happening in Orange County. Um, to expand it though, in San Francisco, uh, suburbs, Richmond and Santa Monica, they already have rent caps and now they want to tighten them further to a maximum of three percent so recently that's below the consumer price index um they want to have a rent oversight board in pasadena and limit rent increases to 75 percent of the cpi which is two or three percent a year so they haven't necessarily gotten everything on the ballot and they haven't gotten everything that they want but they do talk to people that live in Pasadena and live in Richmond and live in these nice areas. And when the state allows up to 10% of an increase, that's a huge increase when you're paying $1,100, $1,200 a month on a fixed income. Say you're retired and living there. Um, this is something we've bumped into a couple of times when we talked to my parents about Prop 13 in California, which everybody said it decimate the schools and it'll decimate the communities. You just figure out how to work around it, and it ends up being really good because it allowed my grandmother to age in place in her home. If the taxes kept going up, she was on a fixed income and would have had to have moved. Um, my parents are now retired, so they're on a fixed income. If they were consistently getting their taxes up, they might have to move. That's chasing the profit at the expense of somebody who 
can't afford an increase because they're not getting a raise. I don't know. It's a more complicated topic, and I think that we should bring somebody on and talk about it. So if you're somebody that knows about that, get in touch with me, and we will talk about it. Um, where I do want to go with this, though, is that there's all these different ways to try and nail what the increases can be. The other side of that is how crafty landlords and lawyers can get with placing that. The first place that I lived in New York, I was renting an apartment and it was it was almost $2,000 a month. But the actual rent was $4,000 a month. They were giving it to us with a rent discount. But that means that at the end of the first year I was there, they raised the rent to nearly $3,000. So they raised the rent 50%, but they didn't actually raise the rent. They decreased the discount. So I think what you end up seeing, and this is very true in Manhattan at least, is the long-term landlords write it in and they just every year, they do the max increase no matter what. And if they have a good tenant, they do a discount. If they need to lease the place, they do a discount. But then once you're in, you can still get these huge increases. So as they're crafting these laws and kind of trying to figure out what to do, I think that's important to keep in mind. If you're trying to keep a stable population, a stable workforce, while also increasing the value of investments and returns, you have to compromise. You have to work on both sides of this. You have to have somebody sitting in the middle going, look, I get that you want to make as much money as possible, but every time we turn the property, it costs money. A disgruntled tenant costs money, and we'll hit a point where we can't increase it anymore because there's there's nobody that can afford to live there. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about pricing and how Poplar in particular does it in future episodes, but I just want to call that out for now and mention rent control. Happening in a bunch of places, tightening in California. The place that's it's interesting on all the stuff that they're doing is in Oakland. So the last one to talk about is Oakland and it's, it's got three measures on the ballot. Uh, Q, U, and V. Uh, those measures getting on the ballot uh, was very expensive. There's a lot of uh, campaigning around them. And then if they go into effect, they're going to affect, they're going to be million dollar initiatives. So measure Q is social housing. It lets the city of Oakland build or acquire up to 13,000 units of government funded housing, also called social housing or public housing. It doesn't guarantee that Oakland's going to do that. It doesn't say they they will or they must. It just gets the first permission out of the way. So if a project is proposed and approved, it can go forward. So the reason they need this is because there's an amendment to the state constitution in 1950. Article 34 required a majority of voters in a community to approve any public housing before it could be built. Since then, voters have squashed many housing proposals, wielding the authority under Article 34. This is that nimbyism we talk about where it's just, nope, don't want it, don't want it, don't want it. Um, advocates for housing don't like it and they want it to be repealed. Uh, It's widely considered a product of racist and classist reactions to the prospect of once exclusive neighborhoods becoming integrated in the 1950s. So it has its roots in this classic American thing of the 1950s were a little bit rough for integration. If Measure Q passes, Oakland would essentially bypass Article 34, pre-approving the social housing without having to wait until an election to float individual projects. So this is a way to get around the hey, I've got a 500-unit project I want to do. I've got a 1,000-unit project I want to do. Classically, you'd have to bring each one of those before the voters. This is saying for up to 13,000, we're good. 
so it's a really interesting way to kind of play against the classic um, one by one thing. Like we were just talking about with Edmund. Edmund, you've got this one lot that's going to be a two or three hundred unit apartment building that's stymied for months and months and months, back and forth, takes time, takes money. This is going, hey, let's let's get the approvals out of the way first. Then people can propose these smaller projects. We don't have to carry them over. It's a smart way to go around it. We'll see what happens with it. It's Oakland, so it depends. That's not a. It's not as liberal as San Francisco. Um, it's not as as left. So it's kind of where a lot of the people that work in San Francisco um, live. It also has Berkeley, though, so it has that student population. We'll see how it goes. It'll be interesting. Uh, Measure U would raise money for affordable housing, street repaving, and general infrastructure. This is the permission to do a bond. So it's asking for an $850 million bond. And then it taxes property owners at about 0.07% per year to do that. So for every $100,000 in your property value, pay 70 bucks a year to go into this um, capital improvement. The Oakland needs a lot for both Infrastructure, affordable housing, which is the largest allocation, transportation projects, so bike lanes, sidewalks, street repaving, and then city facilities, libraries, fire stations, public pools. So I like that they layered everything into this. So it's not a, hey, let's chase this for affordable housing. Hey, let's chase this for repaving and infrastructure. Hey, let's go. You're not doing all these piecemeal things. They're going, hey, dude, we need nearly a billion dollars to fix the city. Let's do it. Here's what it'll cost us. And that 70 bucks per 100 grand a year for property owners, the people that are in those properties are the ones that are using all of these infrastructures. So it may increase somebody's rent by five or six dollars a month. It may end up costing somebody in their overhead or their rent at a commercial space. Like, but they get paved roads, solid infrastructure, workers that are able to afford to live there and have a shorter commute. I think all around it's it's a it's a decent plan to try and chase this down. Um, it's happened before. Oakland voters approved similar infrastructure. Most recently in 2016, they had a 600 million bond. They go through analysis by citizen oversight. They get annual audits. So the city council put it on the ballot. Number of local organizations are all for it. The mayor's in for it. So it looks it looks pretty good. It looks like it might pass, and that'll kind of make it go um the opponents though it's the taxpayers association and an opposing mayoral candidate says the language and promises and the wording is too vague conditions in oakland are perceived to have worsened despite the previous infrastructure bond so they're mad at the city for continuing to tax residents but the tax the infrastructure is not going to be continued to be built or worked on by private companies for nothing you're not going to be able to get potholes filled. You're not going to be able to get the libraries supported. You're not going to be able to get affordable housing off the ground without capital. So this is a way that cities work to get capital and chase their budget obligations. The last one I think affects our listeners the most, and that's measure V. It's going to extend Oakland's eviction protections to include more households. So Oakland already has eviction protections it has what's called the just cause for eviction ordinance it means landlords must have a just reason to kick out a tenant there's 
a list of reasons allowed. Missing rent payments, absolutely. Owner wants to move into the unit, absolutely. Or if the renter's doing something illegal, totally makes sense. So what this is doing is saying you can't just choose to not renew a lease because you want to get the person out and charge more money. If there's a reason to get them out, yes, you should evict them for non-payment. You should evict them if they won't move and you want to move into your house because you're moving back to Oakland. They, If you want to evict because they are breaking bad in your house, you can do that too. But what this one does is expands the number of projects that could be, excuse me, the number of properties that could be uh, covered by this. The Just Cause Ordinance from 2002 only applies to housing built before 96. So Measure V wants to extend the protections to renters and housing built after 96, but new buildings are exempt for the first 10 years after they're constructed. It'd also be extended to tenants of RVs and tiny homes, which can be rented as legal units in Oakland. They have a recent law there. The additional dwelling unit stuff was all part of that. So they're now saying this worked. This kept people housed. You can raise the rent, but you can't raise the rent by kicking somebody out and chasing the market. And I, I think it makes sense. It's a decent balance between sides. I mean, it's... It's hard to continually chase the maximized profit on a property at the expense of somebody else's livelihood. I'm saying that wrong. I think it's fair to chase the, I think, so I think that when you're chasing that market uptick in rent and you go, cool, let's not renew the lease because if we don't renew the lease, we can get a 10% bump. But if they stay in the house, we can only get a 3% bump. 75% 75% of cost, uh, consumer price index. Yeah, but I still say you're going to have those added costs of a vacancy and higher rents, especially when you're at the very top of the market. Slight swings in the market can make people move out so you can increase your number of turns. So in this equation, it's it's I understand the impetus to go, we got to maximize the rent. But let's start thinking about maximizing the revenue. And often one of the best ways to maximize the revenue is get a solid tenant in for a long period of time so you don't have to do anything but collect a check. That's great. If you don't have to worry about releasing a property, if you don't worry about vacancies, if you don't have to worry about releasing fees, you're in really good condition with a maintained tenant and moderate but reasonable increases on an annual basis. So... Those are the things that we're kind of looking around and seeing how they flow out. Um, we have properties in a lot of those places. You guys have properties in a lot of those places that we help manage for you. So we're going to be aware of those laws and changes so that we can advise you as best as possible. Uh, so we did cover short-term rentals in Colorado, which doesn't necessarily apply to us. We do not manage those. Uh, we talked about zoning in Edmond. That does affect us because properties that come online, if they're affected by these weird zoning snafus, we might not be able to help you get a property built. Um, affordable housing in Columbus is huge. Um, we don't have uh, properties there. Mitch is out there with solutions for real estate, so we'll see what he has to say about that. Uh, Orange County, Florida, we don't have, but California, Oakland, Pasadena, we have properties all there. So rent control, evictions, and increased infrastructure are all things that are important to us. Um, we keep track of these. We note them as they come, and we have legal that updates us on what we can do and what we can't do. 
we convey that to the owners, we convey that to the renters, and we're happy to be your property partner in this. So if you have any properties that you need professionally managed, reach out to us. If you have any questions on how this stuff is going to affect you, reach out to us. You can reach us at poplar.home slash pod. That's poplar.home slash pod. Happy voting day, everybody. Go vote. <laughs>